0: Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Blue Monday has got me down. I mean, I'm not down because it's Blue Monday. It's Blue Monday that's got me down. Plus, an illuminating discussion about the real threat of the far right in this country. Plus, let's look at the COVID numbers. Is the lockdown working? Let's get to it.
1: Actually, Alan, uh, I wish to briefly address another interview you had recently with the provincial MPP.
0: Yeah, you're going to talk about Friday's interview. Okay, all right, yeah. all right. Go uh, ahead. It, what do you got? May,
1: May. I, I? I think honestly, the way that you conducted that interview was was extremely unfair. You, um, you really didn't take the time to allow the gentleman to speak his mind and actually uh, go to the metrics that he was more than willing to present to you. You kept cutting his legs out and undermining his credibility in the eyes of the listenership, which um, I think he did a real disservice there. I think I think for whatever reason, um, you, you seem to think that anything is in contradiction to what the populist uh, message is coming from the government regarding COVID is something that isn't something that's to be challenged at all. And I, I find that rather disturbing that um, a, a news-based radio station um, takes such a um, – hardline approach against anybody who pr- proposes even a, a modest uh, opinion in opposition in, in terms of to what the message that is being propagated out there. I, I have to say I'm disappointed.
0: All right, David, uh, listen, I, can, can, I, can I address that? Listen, I'll I, 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 I let you go, i let you say that, i let you say your piece, and, you know, well, listen, um, David, I, you, you're not the only one that have said has said precisely that to me, so let me address it, um, and I thank you again for your call. I do appreciate it, and I believe, and you were Uh, respectful, um, and I appreciate that. And if you're interested in listening to the interview, it is available on our podcast. So I want to address uh, the interview that happened on Friday. Uh, It was uh, with the MPP, uh, Roman Baber, who has been uh, removed from the caucus because he opposes the lockdown measures. Now, if you listen to that interview, uh, I I, I would say that I did allow the MPP to speak his mind. I did allow him uh, to present the facts and figures that he had. Here's what I will say about my interview and my side of it. It was not to my standards. It is not to my personal standards, and I owe the MPP an apology uh, for my tone. I owe you, the audience, an apology uh, for being, uh, being not as prepared with facts to counter what, the MPP was saying, "I didn't have the numbers at my side, and when we have these discussions, it's key that when you have people who are saying this thing is not working or this is where you know arguing gets, you're going to have to be prepared. You have to be better prepared than they are, and I was not better prepared than the MPP, and perhaps that was the reason why uh, I spoke with such passion uh, and." It was too much passion. I have a lot of passion for this. Uh, What I can tell you is that people who are far smarter than me and who are far more qualified than MPP Babber say that the lockdown is working and say that we are at a crisis point in which we must reduce the number of contacts that we have. And that is absolutely key. And what does that is a lockdown Well, hello there, and welcome to Monday. You are hereby authorized to tell anyone who asks you if you're blue on this Blue Monday to just stuff it. You know this Blue Monday thing? You know this. It's just marketing turned up to 11. How high does it go? It goes to 11. Another made-up day on the calendar designed to part you from your money. Shall we just add it to the list of other marketing special days? You got your Mother's Day, you got your Father's Day. Anybody interested in a salary guideline for buying a diamond ring?
2: That's Guys, put let's out be by, positive.
0: That's put out by the diamond company Doug Ford says this on this Blue Monday. Be positive. Of course, none of this social pressure to spend is possible without the support and kind of collusion of the media, of radio stations like this one, of voices like mine, talking about things like Blue Monday. Because it's easy, relatable content, is it not? Even when we know it's all BS... That doesn't stop the think pieces. No, it does not. Here's from the Toronto Star today. Quote, the term Blue Monday was a marketing strategy launched in 2005 by a flight company to increase sales in January. And then the story goes on to deal with if you're feeling blue on this Monday. From the Independent in the UK, we now know... The day is pseudoscience that started life as a PR stunt for travel firms looking to sell holidays. But there is no denying that the combination of factors like winter weather, post-Christmas debt, and broken New Year's resolutions can make things feel a little more difficult. Is that not the truth? How is your New New Year's resolution going, by the way? I like to stick to a New Year's resolution that I can keep, like, I'm going to buy more shoes this year, something like that. Here from Global News Morning Saskatoon this morning, this is happiness researcher Jillian Mandich. I'd I'd like to research more happiness. She begins her segment on the uh, Global News Morning Saskatoon show by explaining, indeed, Blue Monday is not a thing. But there is still something to learn about feeling better today. Here's Gillian Gillian Mandich.
3: One of the ways um, that we can really do this is to move our bodies. In Canada, right, when it gets cold in the winter, we want to hibernate. And yet exercise is so impactful in terms of its effects on our mood and our mental health. Even 10 minutes of exercise can have mood boosting effects for 12 hours. And so whether we have to bundle up and go outside, you know, my ski instructor used to tell me, Jillian, there's no bad weather, just bad dressing for weather. So we need to bundle up and get outside or even moving inside, whether it's having a dance party or doing a virtual class, whatever it is, moving our body is one of those things that's really going, it's going to get those and flowing, and it's going to help us to improve our
0: mood and fight those winter blues. Fight those winter blues. That is happiness researcher Jillian Mandich on this. Not Blue Monday. Not really a real thing, but nevertheless, we're still talking about it. The irony is not lost on me, guys. Let's be positive. All right. Thanks, Doug. Okay, fine. Uh, what you just heard there makes sense. You got to. You got to do something. You got to do something. Dance party, dance party, people. Now, am I just being too much of a grump here on this Monday? Am I blue about this Blue Monday? You know, in fact, if there is one year where Blue Monday is really a worthwhile topic to talk about, it is 2021. Because, of course, we're facing an epidemic of mental health issues that we have yet to see the impact of because of the pandemic. You know, if COVID is, it takes two weeks to go from exposure to people showing up with the disease, the mental health impacts of COVID will might be two months or two years. We don't know yet. So the key is, despite how ridiculous it all is, you gotta have to find the thing to shake your Monday blues today, because you're not gonna get marketed to right. Because there's nowhere to go, right? You can't travel anywhere, right? Oh, wait a minute. Turns out I'm totally wrong on all of those. Because you can still book a flight right now. Vacation resorts are still catering to Canadians. This from the CBC. Canadian air carriers operated more than 1,500 flights between Canada and 18 popular vacation destinations since October, even as caseloads rise. And it's not just Rod Phillips, folks. Of the 1,516 flights analyzed by the CBC, the most popular routes departing from Canada included... 214 flights between Toronto and Montego Bay, Jamaica. Let's go to Mo Bay, baby! Meanwhile, from the Toronto Sun, two Air Transat flights that landed in Montreal from Haiti this week, reportedly carrying so many infected passengers that everybody on board is at risk. And Transport Canada, of course, has made COVID-19 tests mandatory, For any passengers coming back into Canada, that was as of January the 7th. But for some reason, flights from Haiti are exempt from the rule until the 21st of this month. So people are still going south of the border, way down below the Rio Grande. Because here's what Health Canada says about it. Quote, Avoid non essential travel outside of Canada, but it is up to the individual to decide what that includes. So there's no rule that says you can't do it. If you're feeling your pallor, it's just not right. Well, it's essential for me to get a little bit of vitamin D. I got to go get some sun. I got to get myself. A rum punch at a swim-up bar, that is essential. We went deep. Deep. Deep end of the pool. So Health Canada says it is up to the individual to decide what is essential in terms of travel. Now, the Prime Minister says we're considering stronger travel restrictions, but still it's up to you, just like here in the province of Ontario, where you can decide... Is it essential for me to go out and fly a kite? Yes, I feel like it is. And I point that out because I went for a walk on the beach yesterday and there were people flying kites. And I thought, that does not seem essential, but here I am out walking. I've decided that i have gone for this walk. That's essential. That guy thinks flying a kite is essential. It's a choose-your-own-adventure walk down. I continue to be puzzled. Thank you. Thank you, Justin Trudeau. The fallout from the insurrection in Capitol Hill continues not, obvious, not only in the United States, but here in Canada as well. And the question is being raised about the far right in this country. And how much of a problem is it? Is it being used as a boogeyman by progressives, by the liberals, by the NDP? Is it a real concern? Over the course of the weekend... Erin O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, put out a statement that said in part, The Conservatives are a moderate, pragmatic, mainstream party as old as Confederation that sits squarely in the centre of Canadian politics. It goes on to say, My singular focus is to get Canada's economy back on track as quickly as possible to create jobs and secure a strong future for all Canadians. There is no place for the far right In our party. Again, I'll just repeat that last line from Aaron O'Toole there is no place for the far right in our party. Now, this statement comes after a fundraising email from the Liberal Party, in which the Liberals uh, attempted to tie the Conservatives and Aaron O'Toole to more far right and Trumpist leanings. For example, a photo of a senior member of the Conservative. Um, the Conservative Party wearing a MAGA hat, also the, the slogan for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party being Take Back Canada, which has a kind of a Trumpist overtone. And all of it raises questions about the Conservatives and also about the definition of far right and where we move from right-wing, which is obviously a you know, right-wing conservative point of view is absolutely valid, but a far-right one, an extremist one, someone exposing hate and white nationalist ideas is not welcome, obviously. Let's get a better sense of how much of a problem the far-right is in this country with my next guest, Barbara Perry, who is director of Ontario's Tech University Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism. Welcome to the program, Barry. Uh Barbara
3: good afternoon Alan
0: <laughs> uh, let's begin with this there have been some has been some research that's showing that there is significant chatter significant channels of far-right extremism in this country what do we know about
3: it yeah it's pretty active here I think much more active than people would expect uh, we published a, a report in 2015 that showed a just over 100 active groups across Canada, and we're estimating closer to 300 active groups now, um, and that includes new groups and new chapters of, of existing groups. Um, so, you know, that's a that's a pretty uh, significant number for Canada, and I think we also have to think about how prevalent they are online as well. Uh, a report that we did with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in the UK identified over 6,600, and this is just looking at, I think it was four platforms, uh, 6,600 Um, social media channels associated with the far right and ranking Canada up there, you know, in the top three or five um, active users.
0: Is there a, a distinctive nature of the Canadian far right that would make it different than what we see on the rise in the United States?
3: Well, they certainly haven't been nearly as violent uh, as uh, the American movement, Um, not to say that they haven't been. I mean, in the last 20 years, sorry, last 10 years or so, uh, we've seen just over 20 homicides associated with the far right. So, you know, we I think we have to keep that in mind. But uh, I doubt that we'll see the kind of insurrectionist activity that we saw in the U.S., for example, last week and we will likely continue to see this week. So um, I think their their narratives are very similar, but I think their propensity for violence is a little bit lower than their American counterparts.
0: Is that simply the absence of a kind of a militia style uh, movement like we have in the United States? We just don't have that on this side of the border.
3: Yeah, that's part of it. And I think that that's that's one of the things that actually is is starting to concern me a little is that we're beginning to see more of that militia movement uh, emerge here and more of a gun rights uh, narrative as well, uh, which is also, I think, one of the things that makes the uh, the American far right more dangerous is that uh, that obsession with guns. Uh, And we are starting to see that amongst some uh, some elements and some groups in Canada.
0: Could you comment on the significance, uh, if, if there is any in your mind, of the uh, statement that I read from Aaron O'Toole about there being uh, no place for the far right in uh, the Canadian Conservative Party?
3: Well, I certainly hope he's sincere in that. And I think that, if anything, the events in the U.S. have been a wake-up call for Canadian politicians as well, especially when we think about the reaction of Canadians to that, you know, who were so dismayed and, and disturbed by that. So uh, I, I think it's a, it's a strong signal that uh, Canadians don't have the same kind of appetite for that sort of rhetoric or narrative uh, that Americans have. And so uh, O'Toole needs to listen to that.
0: Um, when you look at what happened in the wake of the attack with the deplatforming of the president and the uh, parlor being shut down, I, I know that you study and, and follow these groups on, in social media. Have we made it more difficult for ourselves now to be able to follow where these groups have gone?
3: Well, that's the flip side of it, isn't it? It is a little more difficult now. Um, I, although, you know, even prior to that, much of the the worst of the language was actually uh, occurring inside uh, encoded chat rooms anyway. So it's always been quite difficult for us to, uh, to really get at the worst of the worst. But, you know, for that kind of chatter that we were, were hearing leading up to uh, you know the events last week and and the planning for this week um, that is that's been pretty public so to to shut that down and to limit uh, you know the, the the likelihood that someone's going to chance upon it or the capacity of groups to uh, to organize um, you know th- that's had an impact there but it, it is going to slow down our ability to uh, to follow these groups um, I, although I think we're kind of getting used to them moving around a lot you know closing down in one spot and popping up somewhere else so we just have to be as equally as agile.
0: I'm speaking with uh, Barbara Perry, who is the director of the Ontario Tech University's Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism. And one of the things, Barbara, I've been thinking about a lot uh, since uh, the Six is the tactics of terror. Because often you now are hearing um, the insurrectionists, that's one term you heard here, or uh, domestic terrorists uh, who stormed the Capitol building. And if I think about what the what the tactics of terror is, is it tends to be to try and um, provoke an outsized response from whoever the terrorist is attacking, and therefore drive more people that might not have been on the terrorist side into their arms and on their side. So if that is the tactics of terror, is there not a danger here that if we start saying, well, far right and far right, and we deplatform people, that we might actually drive those that would not Nef- necessarily associate with the far right slowly into their arms.
3: Um, you know, there's, I mean, there's some small chance of that, right? If we talk about them, if we name them, then people can go go looking for them. But I think that you know, allowing them to hide in the shadows uh, is, is even more dangerous. That's been the problem. Uh, You know, up until the last couple of years is that there's been a failure to acknowledge the threat associated with the far right, which is one of the things that allowed it to grow in the Canadian context. Law enforcement weren't responding. Uh, You know, governments weren't responding uh, to the increase in the movement until, you know, it had reached, uh, you know, quite a a fevered pitch. Uh, So I think that there is there's a necessity to uncovering these groups.
0: I, I I want to clarify because I, I I was perhaps a little clumsy in my explanation there. I, I in no way do I uh, condone anything that's being said, or I I'm certainly we have to shine a light on it, but. If we have a situation where, you know, other parties, liberals, NDP are, are saying, well, this, this party is connected to the far right, is that not going to potentially really turn off some people on the legitimate right and potentially, you know, get them to a point where they feel so disenfranchised they might go someplace more extreme? Well, I mean,
3: that's what we heard from the U.S. You know, that's the one of the explanations often given for the the rise of the right around Trump is that, you know, that was sort of the only space where they were um, given credibility, where they weren't shunned, where they weren't, uh, you know, criticized as, uh, you know, as as racist. Um, But, yeah, I think, again, I think Canadians are a a different ethos. uh, And I don't think it'll have that same kind of impact here.
0: Barbara, I appreciate your uh, your comments and coming on the program today. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Okay, good to talk to you. That is Barbara Perry, who is the director of Ontario Tech University's Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism. Is the lockdown working? Is it doing what it is supposed to do? There are many, many of you listening right now who don't believe that the lockdown is a good idea, that we should open things back up, that we're causing more damage by locking down and putting in a stay-at-home order than we are from COVID. There, That's out there. Well, let's look at the numbers, shall we? And for that, uh, I am pleased to welcome my next guest who has looked at the numbers, Ryan Imgren, who is a biostatistician. And thanks for having me. Why do you say the lockdown is working? The
2: lockdown seems to be working because of the 34 public health units here in uh, Ontario, um, almost 30 of them have a reproductive value under one. What this means is that one primary infection is leading to less than one secondary infection.
0: And you see that number coming down steadily since the lockdown goes into place in, uh, on Boxing Day, that lockdown?
2: Yes. So actually, um, what we see normally is it does take around seven to 10 days for any lockdown to start to have an effect. Um, it seems that if An individual has a case um, that they can still transmit it to someone else, even if they're following lockdown restrictions through household transmission and other things like that. But it does take around seven to 10 days for any impact to be seen. So any drop that we have seen in the last week or so is strictly due to the December 26 lockdown. It would probably take until this weekend or mid next week for us to really be able to assess last week's lockdown.
0: You you were saying in your Twitter thread that you were looking for the numbers on Wednesday. What what is the significance of Wednesday?
2: Yeah, so it seems to be about seven days. Once you start a lockdown, you normally start to see you know things start to like drop. Wednesday is also typically when here in Ontario um, we do have the lowest re, uh, reproductive values, and it does seem to start to climb up Thursday through Sunday, just naturally, whether it be through weekend gatherings, whether it be through us leaving our, our uh, house more and seeing non-household people more. So it seems to start to rise on the weekends, but it's always nice to compare Wednesday reproductive values because if you see those drop um, then that's a sign that the the new lockdown seems to be working.
0: That kind of goes counter to what we have heard from some health officials. We've heard from uh, the Associate Medical Officer of Health who would say that the lockdown, especially the one that was put in place in Toronto and Peel doesn't seem to have worked, but what you're seeing is something different.
2: Yes, I certainly am. In fact, the, the Toronto reproductive value right now is actually significantly under one. It's around 0.85. Now, that doesn't sound significant, but it basically means that 100 cases is going to turn into just 85 cases in approximately four days. So it's actually a, a significant drop um, that we're seeing in, some of the really, really big public health units. In fact, the ones where we're seeing a reproductive value over one seem to be ones um, like Ottawa ones where, um, you know, the, the case count isn't as high as it is in some of the GTA regions.
0: I I often caution uh, my listeners not to pay too much attention to the daily case numbers because it can drive you around the bend. It's up (laughs) one day, you feel horrible. The next day it's down and you feel elation. And so the numbers are lower today and what do you make of that and perhaps you have some better advice for our listeners
2: yeah I'm also not a big fan of following the, the daily case counts either um, I think with the daily case counts is that we do see natural fluctuations uh, with this being a Monday um, some of this is reflective of what we saw on Saturday and Sundays typically when um, we have fewer tests being run we also have uh, fewer um, like tests being like analyzed and sometimes we don't have all the numbers being released on the weekend either. So, I do find typically um, what we um, you know find in those situations um, is that uh, you know we we see like changes to those values around that time. So you got to be really really careful on those day to day numbers. I like do like the seven day trend, looking at what happens from a Monday through a Sunday. That way, any testing changes are really different. Um, but this reproductive value is really, it's smoothed over five days, and it's really looking at the actual growth of the cases um, and with uh, factors inherent to the actual virus. That's why I really like this value in assessing how well a lockdown is actually working.
0: Speaking with Ryan Imgren, who is a statistics expert looking at all the numbers, all the dashboard numbers coming out of the COVID uh, pandemic in Ontario and across the country. And Ryan, there's been a, a lot of discussion, especially last week when we had a Maverick MPP say that the lockdown's not working, it should be lifted and it's causing too much economic mental health pain, all, all the other issues. And there's a lot of people who believe that. So I'm wondering from your perspective, as you look at the numbers, what does it tell you about the lockdown and if it is indeed effective in controlling the spread of the virus?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, we should start by just saying nobody wants a lockdown. Um, A lockdown is not the best thing to do. Nobody wants it, but it does show that lockdowns are effective. What we're seeing in Alberta right now is we're seeing a reproductive value of 0.85. Once again, uh, 100 cases leading to 85 cases in approximately four days. They now have their weekly case count at 120 per 100,000. That is down from around 300 per 100,000 about four to five weeks ago. So that's a significant drop because they've been able to lower that value. If you look to like Quebec as well, um, they have a reproductive value of around 0.7, very similar to like Alberta. Mind you, they have like chose to lock down other things. They have a like curfew in like play as well. But we always see is that um, when we have this lockdown, we inevitably see numbers significantly come down. It's what it's what simply always happens.
0: So, so th- this it always follows that any kind of a lockdown reduces contact, therefore reduces the spread. The R not goes down. I'm wondering if you could just comment on. Uh, what has been described as a kind of a choose-your-own-adventure kind of a lockdown here in the (laughs) province of Ontario, where you get to decide whether or not the thing you are doing is essential and how you think that plays into what we saw in, you know, other jurisdictions. I know um, Stoney Brown, Dr. Brown points out, you know, Australia, for example, where there's really strict lockdowns and how they control things. And, And what's your assessment of that?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because I think, you know, we, we really have over 200-plus countries worldwide. Each country is doing their own thing when it comes to locking down for COVID-19. Some are attacking the retail sector. Some are attacking schools. Some are attacking essential versus non-essential businesses. But what we have seen worldwide is that the most effective things in attacking COVID-19 transmission has been to move schools online, ban gatherings, and reduce retail capacity. And this is, you know, sort of where it goes against what some people think is that it's not a bad thing to have some non-essential stores open at extremely lower capacity. For instance, if you had a local toy store open at 20% capacity and you allow them to increase hours, what this does is that if you have someone who would be forced to shop for this toy from, from a big box store, what they would now do is they would shop for, you know, shop at a more local entity, which has reduced retail capacity. At these, you know, some of these non-essential stores too, you wouldn't spend a lot of time there because you're there for one item. You're not there for 15, 20 items. So what it does is it stops how long we're actually in a place for. And that's really what we have seen worldwide is that those are the biggest things that have an impact on COVID-19 transmission, and that's why, as you said, this whole kind of choose-your-own-adventure thing here in uh, Ontario, it will be effective, but it won't be as effective as it could have actually been.
0: Ryan, great to have you on. I appreciate your perspective. Be well. Thank you again.
2: And thanks for having me. You take it easy.
0: That is our Ryan Imgrunt, who is a biostatistician looking at the numbers, and his take from the numbers is the lockdown is doing what it was intended to do, which is limiting contact, and that is lowering the R-naught. How's your R-naught? Well, my R-naught's below one. Well, fancy your R-naught. Uh, I will tell you this. This has happened uh, just this morning. We've been uh, talking about uh, Roman Babber, who is the uh, MPP who has been uh, kicked out of the caucus, of the PC caucus, for opposing the lockdown. He has now issued uh, a letter from Ontario's former Chief Medical Officer of Health, Richard Chabas, who has uh, put out a letter supporting uh, the PC and says that uh, his uh, his takeaway from it all is correct. That will add a little bit more fuel to the fire. Uh, I will point out that uh, back in March, uh, Dr. Chabas, again, Ontario's former Chief Medical Officer of Health, Uh, was saying that COVID, quote, does not register as a dire global crisis. So back in March, it was not a dire global crisis, I think. Some of us might have a different opinion about COVID-19. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show. Weekdays starting at noon.